Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum. I'm David Benedetto, and today I'll be speaking with two authors with new novels out, both dealing with tragedies and the people in cities that have to move through them. We'll start with Chicago-based author Rebecca Mackay, whose new book, The Great Believers, takes place in the 1980s at the start of the AIDS crisis. Take a listen. So the new book explores a couple of different timelines, one set in the 1980s in Chicago at the start of the AIDS epidemic. And I'm wondering what made you want to examine this period in particular? Yeah, I, you know, what's funny is I didn't set out to do that. Um, I sort of, I took a really strange left turn and ended up over there. But um, the book started with, um, I, I really wanted to write about a woman who'd been an artist's model in 1920s Paris. And that is still 5% of the book or so, but it was originally going to be all the book. Um, she was going to be looking back on her life at the end of it. And I figured she couldn't have lived much past the 1980s, just some basic math there. Yeah. And then I, I wanted it to be about the relationship she had with this art guy of some kind um, to whom she was trying to um, donate some artworks that she had left over from back in that time. And then I figured I have an art guy in the 80s. Maybe AIDS will be uh, in the background in some way. Um, and somewhere along the way, it just that's where the gravity of the story fell for me. The more research I did, the more I felt compelled to write about it. And pretty soon that's what I had was, um, you know, to my delight, because I, I, I took great joy in writing about this, and I, that's a strange word to use for a very heavy topic, but um, I, I really loved writing this book. So it wasn't, you know, wasn't a mistake, <laughs> just was um, a later discovery for me that that's what I wanted to write. No, I get that. That's quite the swerve right there. I, I think that's cool. Uh, that you kind of found that from a very, very different very different angle. Um, talking about kind of the, the research into this, this area, what, uh, how, how was it researching this, this time period and kind of going into the archives? What were your sources? What were you trying to find? Yeah. You know, it was actually pretty difficult in that I was writing about Chicago rather than New York or San Francisco. Um, and I discovered early on that Basically, everything out there is about New York or San Francisco, maybe L.A., maybe Paris or London. Um, I was expecting there to be a bunch of nonfiction accounts of the AIDS crisis in Chicago. And while there were certainly articles, there's certainly a lot of stuff out there, I never did find that big nonfiction book. It hasn't been written. Someone needs to write it. Um, someone with you know better nonfiction chops than me because <laughs> I write fiction. Um, I did find a lot of stuff online. I found a lot of primary source material. I went to the library and I read every back issue of the Windy City Times, which is Chicago's main gay weekly, from 1985 to 1992. Um, that was really interesting. And then I did a whole lot of in-person interviews with survivors, doctors, nurses, lawyers, historians, journalists, um, activists, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, that research, you know, it's certainly unfortunate for the world that there is not yet a major nonfiction account of AIDS in Chicago, um, but was a blessing in disguise for my writing in that it forced me out from behind my desk and it made me do this legwork, which really enriched my writing in so many ways. No, I could see that. This this can serve as a call to action to people that they should make that that primary document or that 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 nonfiction book should come out at some point from someone. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I, and I, I'm as much as I hope I got everything right. I also hope that whatever I inevitably got wrong 
um, if someone's, you know, um, or left out, you know, and I, and I know a million things I left out, um, that, that when people realize that, that they see it as, a sign that they need to write their own experiences down too, or that they could be, um, you know, interviewing people, uh, publishing those interviews, getting things in, in book form or in film form. Yeah, no, I get that. Um, tell me a little bit more about your, your interviews with some of the survivors and, and people, family members that are affected uh, by this epidemic. Um, so for writers, I know it can be, especially fiction writers, it can be hard to get from behind the desk, as you said, and really reach out to people specifically about events and topics that are really hard to talk about and still very sensitive. Um, what was that experience yeah. like? Yeah, you know, I really, I think that in the past, um, in reaching out to people, it, you know, it really, it really took me until I'd been fairly well published to feel like I could contact someone, especially a stranger, and say, hey, I'm a writer. Um, and so fortunately, you know, this is my fourth book, I felt a little bit more comfortable doing that than I had in the past, although everyone should feel comfortable doing that. People love to talk about their own experiences in general, um, if you are, you know, handling it right, if you're being respectful, if you're um, asking in the appropriate way. So um, I, you know, one thing that helped was that I started with my own friends, even if they had not been there in Chicago in the 80s. You know, I'm a bit younger than the characters I'm writing about. Um, so friends my own age might have, you know, I might be talking to them and they're saying, well, I moved to Chicago in 1992. And then, you know, I didn't quite live in that neighborhood. And I was sort of in the closet for a few years, but I was there, you know, so it wasn't the most direct experience. But um, I'm interviewing them, I'm still getting a lot out of it. And at the end of that interview, I'm saying, who, you know, tell me three more people I should talk to next. Yeah. And then they were volunteering to make those introductions. So now I have an email introduction from someone who's vouching for me that I'm a legitimate writer. I'm a good person. I'm not, you know, <laughs> um, I'm, you know, fairly pleasant to talk to. Um, and um, I have a chance to explain my project and then meet with them. And, you know, in the process of meeting with them, you know, once or twice or even more, become close to them. And I'm able to say to them, okay, now, who are the next three people I should talk to? And um, in that way, I started kind of um, really getting towards the epicenter of things and really got, um, by the end, to, you know, the, for instance, the two doctors who'd started the major AIDS unit in, um, at Illinois Masonic Hospital in Chicago, um, you know, not people who um, had been diagnosed with HIV in the early 80s and really involved in ACT UP and are still with us, yeah. um, which was, you know, a bit a bit farther from where I started with my own friends. No, I think that's so interesting. And, you know, it's really kind of comes to the the kind of home of the book or the heart of the book to where a lot of people view this crisis in a rear view mirror sense to where it's behind us. And there's so many other things happening today. But there are so many people worldwide that are still affected by the disease. And those that have survived or lost family or loved ones are still very much dealing with it. Right. Yeah, no, there's there's still there are 1.1 million people living with HIV in America. And um, around the world, there are a million people dying of AIDS a year, which is not something that, you know, as, I, as I've shared that statistic with people, I've seen a lot of shock on their faces, people who aren't, you know, directly involved in AIDS advocacy, um, that um, not only, you know, is there all of that, there's also, you know, just the number of people who maybe never contracted HIV 
um, but who lost a generation of their friends um, because, you know, and not, not only gay men, but, you know, women who, you know, I, I've talked to um, a number of women who simply, you know, worked in the arts um, or, you know, began caring for one friend and then another and then another um, and are, are still living with the psychological trauma of that 30 years later. Um, so it's it's still, you know, it's still very much around us. We are still very much living in the world that this crisis made. Um, and not only psychologically, not only in terms of the lives of survivors, but in terms of um, our healthcare system, the the mess that's still with us, the the few small improvements that we might have made that hopefully we don't lose um, in the aftermath of AIDS, um, and the lessons that we desperately need to be learning from that time, from the crest of AIDS in America, and what went wrong, and and the things that went right as well. Yeah, no, no, exactly. Um, to kind of to switch to a more a technical standpoint, uh, what was the hardest thing for you about writing this book? Huh. <laughs> Gosh, um, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to give you a like really snarky answer about my <laughs> um, back pain, but um, <laughs> no. Um, uh, gosh, you know, it's honestly, I think one of the biggest hurdles for me early on was trusting or just questioning whether I had the right to tell this story. Um, you know, I'm, I was, you know, seven when the story starts, I'm a straight woman. I, you know, although, um, I have many connections with that community. Now I was not in that community when I was seven years old yeah. and, um, I had a lot of trepidation and a lot of concern, um, that I would do a poor job, um, that I would offend people by writing a story that wasn't mine to tell that, um, I would maybe in some way, you know, take a voice away from a more direct account. Um, and in the end, I, you know, I, I wouldn't have published this book if I hadn't allayed those fears. Um, I do feel like the research that I did allowed me to do, a, you know, the best job that I could on this book. And um, I also, you know, really feel that, you know, the way publishing works, um, the success of this book is going to make publishers more likely, not less likely, to throw money behind another similar project a year from now, um, another book about HIV AIDS, um, a LGBTQ voice that's aiming at, you know, general fiction, at, at, at literary fiction. Um, and that as I promote this book, I have the opportunity to amplify other more direct counts, uh, direct accounts of the crisis. Um, I can direct people to, you know, books, films, direct accounts, nonfiction. Um, and um, it's been it's been fun for me to talk about some of those things, other resources for people to read more. And I really feel that, you know, my hope is that if this is the first book that someone has read about AIDS, it is not the last. No, I, I get that. And I think that's a really important point right there, specifically within the publishing industry and how that, that, that kind of beast works in a lot of ways of uh, who's represented and uh, versus that kind of profit margin right there. That's really an important thing. Um, yeah. Uh, before we go, I'd love to talk to you about um, short stories and stories in general. I, I know you have appeared in the Best American Short Stories several times, and I'm interested what your favorite short story written by someone else is, and in your opinion, Oof. what makes a good story in general? 
Oh gosh. Oh, that's such a hard question. Um, I will pick a favorite at random. <laughs> um, so gosh, let's see. Uh, um, you know what? I'm going to give you one. It's a really weird story um, in so many ways, and I love it. And I'm going to give it to you because people can find it online oh, nice. um, pretty easily. And then you can go out and buy this author's books from a great independent bookstore. Um, but it's called The Appropriation of Cultures, and it's by Percival Everett. Okay. And um, you can find it online either written or if you can – if, it, if it's still available, um, there was a podcast of selected shorts from PRI um, at which that was read on stage by an actor. Um, and I, I love so much about that story. I love the way it clips through time. I love the way the perspective pulls back. Um, I love how politically sharp and funny it is. Um, and it's very short. You have no excuse not to read it because it'll take you like five minutes. Um, so, um, gosh, what makes a good short story? Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think that um, I, you know, I, I think a good short, gosh, oh my gosh. I think a good short story, you know, generally is something that you can read in one sitting, um, which you know is going to be true of any short story, but that you sit down one way and you get up fundamentally changed. Like you've put on a, just a different pair of glasses and you're seeing the world differently if only for, you know, a little while. Um, and, you know, in that way, I think that short stories work a little bit more like poetry, actually. Um, you know, just here's a, here's a lens through which to view the world. Here's something weird. Um, and I, I love the way that short stories can get away with more experimentation, more weirdness than a novel necessarily could um, in that, you know, there are experiments that you could sustain for five pages that would get really grating if you tried to sustain them for 350 pages. Um, so people who don't read short stories, I think, are missing out on some of the absolute best, most exciting experimental. And I don't mean experimental in a weird way, just like it's cool. It's doing something different um, stuff that's being done. No, I get that. I think that's a solid answer. Um, right before we go, I know you have to go to another interview, but uh, what are you reading right now? Um, I am reading a nonfiction book by another Chicago author named Kim Brooks, and it's called Small Animals Parented in the Age of Fear. Um, and it's a, you know, it's, 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 a wonderful. It's going to be good for the general audience, but for people who care about literature, it's just it's a great literary nonfiction book. Okay. Um, all all about the sociology of why we're so afraid of um, leaving our children alone for five seconds, and it's all centered around the story of um, the time she got arrested for leaving her son in the car for five minutes to run into a store. Um, and it's going to be out in August, so it's oh. not available yet, but it will be soon, and it's fantastic. Okay, well, good recommendation there. Uh, well, Rebecca, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Appreciate it. That was Rebecca Mackay, author most recently of The Great Believers. Up next, I'll be speaking with Hannah Petard, whose book Visible Empire is set in Atlanta in the 1960s and tackles the second worst plane crash in aviation history and how it affects those families and friends left behind, as well as a city on the brink of change. Hi, Hannah. How's it going today? Oh, it's going really well. Thanks for having me. Of course. So this is not your first time in New Orleans, I hear. No, I come I come to New Orleans pretty frequently, uh, I, I would think past 20 times now. Um, 
but I love to eat. I love to drink. I love to walk around this city. It's perfect. It's magical. I think if I lived here, I'd be dead, which is one reason I cannot move here. Yeah, most of us are dying in some, some ways more than others, of course. But, but really happily. Yes, very much for the most part, you know, if we get past the streets right. and all kinds of other things. But, yeah. um, but i got to dive into the novel, um, Visible Empire. Uh, tell me a little bit about how this process started for you for writing it. I know it is based in your hometown uh, of Atlanta, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so I grew up hearing stories about this crash. My mom was 13. My dad was 20 when it happened. Uh, and it was it it was something that loomed large for them in the way that I think it loomed large for, you know, almost everybody in Atlanta who who was alive at the time. And it's been a story that's been brewing in the back of my mind. Um I didn't think that I was ready to write it um, when I was working on my first novel. That was about 10 years ago. And uh, and I just would think about it from time to time, but I never thought I was prepared to do the kind of research that it would require. Or frankly, I didn't think that I had uh, the the ability to put so many different pieces together or the confidence. I think mostly what I what I might have lacked was the confidence. And fortunately, uh, you know, I think with three books under my belt, uh, there was a feeling of why not give it a try? And, and I did. And it was two years of research, which was unlike anything I've ever done. You know, I'm definitely, I tend to be a writer who makes things up. Yeah. It's fiction. Uh, and this this was different because it was research. And, and sometimes that would be really fun because it would mean even when I wasn't writing, I was technically working. And other times that would be very frustrating because I felt like I'm working on this book all the time and I have no pages to show it. Yeah. That that can be a very frustrating thing. Oh, absolutely. That. Yeah, and I know being based in real life on this 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 crash and kind of the effects of it. Did you reach out to survivors or, or not survivors of the crash itself, but but family members that were affected by this? Is that something that you wanted to do in your research prospects? I did not do that, yeah. uh, and I I didn't do that for a couple reasons. So there's there's a great book of nonfiction about this crash. It's called Explosion at Orly, which is the airport in Paris where the crash occurred. Uh, and it's by a woman called Anne Abrams. And she wrote a terrific book. It's very thorough. It's very generous. And it was incredibly instrumental in the beginning research of of my book. Um, when I thought initially about being in touch with loved ones and uh, victims, survivors, victims, children, uh, I, I was very nervous. The more I thought about it, the more nervous I became, especially when reading Anne Abrams' book, that I would be tempted to be faithful mm -hmm. to their stories. And I would be uh, nervous about getting things wrong and uh, and that the, there would probably be too strong a desire to be accurate, uh, in which case I would have ended up writing a book of nonfiction and that was unnecessary because one already exists and I couldn't have done it better. And I also, you know, I wanted to tell the stories that I wanted to tell. Yeah. And uh, so so I didn't um, get in touch with anybody. I did a lot of research. I did a lot of reading of magazines, newspapers, um, you know, local things, but also national to, to get my head into 1962 and into Atlanta but I, I avoided the the personal stories. No, I, I can understand that. That yeah. makes a lot of sense, especially coming from that place where that book has already been written. Don't want to like go down that path again too, exactly. too much. Exactly. Um, 
besides the, the plane crash itself, you're dealing with, as you said, Atlanta in the early 60s on the precipice of this huge change that's going to come in the form of, of many ways, the cultural movements, the civil rights movement, all these things happening. Uh, what was it like trying to capture that moment? Sure. It's it's so interesting um, going around doing you know radio interviews and and readings, sometimes when people do the introduction for the book, they talk about uh, 1962 in Atlanta as being, you know, the peak of the civil rights movements. Or, and it's not. It's really not. Like you just said, it's it's the precipice. Um, and, and so that was one of the reasons I was actually looking forward to doing the research and why uh, this crash so fascinated me because it wasn't 1968 or mm. 1969. Um, it was the beginning of privileges being questioned. And there's something about that time period that seems really familiar about the time period that we're living in now where privileges that have been taken for granted are, we're talking about them and we're renegotiating them. And I'm, I'm thinking specifically of, you know, Black Lives Matter or hashtag me too. Uh, and so it was really an interesting and cool time to be researching. Frustrating, obviously, uh, a frustrating time as well. But, you know, if I mean, there's a lot of stuff that didn't make it into the book, but I'm really, really grateful that I learned about it. In, in fact, Ivan Allen, who was the mayor in Atlanta, you know, he was elected in 61. He took office in 62. And so he'd only his term had just started when this crash occurred. And and he knew, you know, most, if not all of the people on the plane. And so this is the beginning of his term and his career as mayor, which is really, really fascinating. And uh, Ivan Allen was a moderate liberal, we'll put it that way, for the time period. But he was motivated by economics mm -hmm. He would, and, and by pragmatism. He was not somebody who was looking to be an advocate of the African-American. That is not what initially motivated him, even though he did become increasingly progressive. Uh, but one of the things that I found out while researching Atlanta in 1962 and Mayor Ivan Allen, and this doesn't make it into the book, but part of me wonders, is there a book later? I don't know if I could do another 1962 Atlanta book, yeah. <laughs> but speaking of the relevance to that time period and this time period, Mayor Ivan Allen allowed a wall to be built between a white community and a black community later that same summer. Uh, by the time it was found un un unconstitutional, which it was, obviously, uh, and, and so the wall was torn down and construction never finished, but... By the time that occurred, Ivan Allen was really grateful that it was coming down because, you know, the city just erupted. Uh, but I couldn't believe that this actual wall had begun, that that he had approved it and it was being built between these two communities. And and it's hard, you know, it's very tempting to think of a story called The Wall that isn't about Berlin and isn't about Mexico, but is about Atlanta. Yeah, that's so surreal almost. It's, it's pretty surreal. Oh, weird. You always think of like the walls and like the, the terms of like authoritarianism or, or you know, um, national or global politics in a certain right. way. but a not city. Yeah, that, that's so <laughs> strange to think about. Oh, wow. Um, to kind of hone in on some of the writing aspects of this, I know uh, you've written a few novels, obviously kind of set in current times. Uh, and this one, as you mentioned, you had to do heavy research on it. Uh, did you, do you find it easier to write in the present or did you get some sort of joy out of doing the research and having like more surrounding things to think about for, for characters in the past? I will be completely honest. Yeah. When I wrote these characters, I just thought of them 
as as human beings yeah. with with big old goofy hearts and and I it was only after really crafting the the stories and the plot lines that I went back and I put in some jargon from the time period you know I had this very useful um stapled together set of probably 12 or 13 sheets that were slogans and sayings and phrases from the 50s and the early 60s and even some from the 40s and they that was that was a very entertaining uh sort of you know fill in the blank portion of the revision process yeah. uh but really i just concentrated on trying to get the relationships and the dynamics correct and and also because i am somebody who is in general very uneasy with technology and you know i'm i'm from the i think the last generation that didn't grow up with cell phones so it's very easy for me to imagine this time period where nothing is convenient and you have to find a landline at best uh and you know television was not a go to in my house so television as this new thing that isn't a guaranteed right or a privilege uh that that's a very easy time period for me yeah. uh you know and my my first novel takes it begins in the 80s and uh it begins with a phone tree and i managed to leave cell phones out of it completely <laughs> um and by the time i wrote my third novel i i was teaching full time and i had this greater sense of sort of social obligation that i write about and something that i would tell my students that we write about the things that actually affect us and that we care about and technology was something that i was thinking a lot about uh i was you know having some difficult interactions with it and so the third book finally acknowledges technology it acknowledges the way that it can make jerks of all of us and then it was really nice to go back to 1962 for the fourth <laughs> book where at most uh you know i had some wires some tele telegrams and the occasional phone call. <laughs> no, I get that. Technology makes it very hard and interesting, interesting hard for um writers and for people that do TV or movies because I know there's it was like that series of every um law and order episode that could have been solved by a cell phone like pre like 2005, you know. Exactly. And and it changes so quickly. Technology changes so quickly now that trying to capture any of it just dates writing um really quickly and and it's you know as a writer one would prefer not to be dated you know you like the idea of writing a story or a novel that could be picked up in 20 or 30 years and still be relevant um you know i think one of one of the books one of the smartest books that i've read in the last 10 years is super sad true love story uh i can't i still don't understand how Two years before we were wearing watches like jewelry, he imagined that. And so, on the one hand, it's this really prophetic work of art, and on the other hand, it's already dated because everything he imagined that did come true is already out of date. Yeah, It's fascinating, fascinating work. <laughs> no, I agree with that. Um, you mentioned teaching. You're at the University of Kentucky, mm -hmm. and yeah. you're the head of the creative writing department. I am. There, you can't say department. Department. We're, we're a program. Ah, program. Excuse me. <laughs> uh, so I am the director of the creative writing program that is housed in the English department. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. Uh, I teach. I teach graduate workshops, and I also teach. Uh, a really large lecture class is about 150 primarily freshmen okay. um and you know I've been doing it full time since 
2010, first at DePaul University and now at the University of Kentucky. And I, I have been promised by colleagues and other people that eventually I will get sick of it. But <laughs> I really enjoy being in the classroom. I, I, I really believe in public education. I believe in, in getting getting to those 18 to 22-year-olds while their hearts and souls and minds can still be affected yeah. and changed and their horizons can be expanded. I am you know, I'm definitely a glass half full optimist type well, of teacher. That's so, a good thing, yeah. I think. Um, <laughs> is there a book in that that freshman class that you normally do that you just love teaching? With the well, with the freshmen, this will sound cynical after all of the positive things I've just said, <laughs> but it's really difficult for them to uh, to convince them that they want to read for more than a page or two. So I use I use a textbook by a writer, uh, Janet Burroway, um, and it has poems, nonfiction, fiction, nothing longer than five pages. Uh, but there's a terrific, yes, the answer is yes, though. There's this terrific, very, very, very short story by Margaret Atwood called, I think it's called The Female Body. Uh, it might be called something else, but it's it's Margaret Atwood, and it's her response to uh sort of this misogynistic comment that showed up in a magazine. And this story is so funny and it's so smart. And uh, it just, it always gets the class completely involved. And then as a result, I assign one of her um, sort of creative writing prompts is to write a poem about a part of your body that you don't like. And this is the fourth year that actually this will be the fifth year that I've been teaching and giving this assignment. And I do it every year, even though I know, because I learned from that very first year, that in a class of 150 students, you're going to have at least one, if not 20, who say, I love everything about my body. I I will not write this poem. And and I never make them. If they don't want to write a poem about you know, a portion of their body they don't like, uh, I tell them, write me an essay about why you don't want to write the poem. But... I love this because it's it just causes such an interesting conversation. And I also, I think it's important to be okay with the fact that I might hate something about my body. It doesn't mean that I hate myself. Yeah. And and, and I, I really encourage honesty in fiction and in creative writing. And I'm hoping that with that conversation and that prompt, it begins a sort of inner conversation for my students of, it's okay if I don't like my chin. It's okay if I don't like my nose. The, to to this day, the best poem that I've ever read was about a young man. He's graduating this year. He's a terrific English major. Uh, but he wrote a poem about hating his chin, and it was hysterical. And I sent it to Jana, Janet Burroway, whose textbook I use, and she just thought it was amazing too. Um, <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I think that's great. It, it kind of leads to the point to where, you know, with creative writing courses, people always expect, oh, you're just writing whatever you want. But it's it's kind of like trying to approach an intersection of many different subjects and bring them together, both kind of like inward looking for the students as well as like all these different connections that they can kind of make within their own writing and what they want to write about. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and prompts are so useful because a lot of times, especially with young or early writers, there's this desire to express themselves, but they don't know how or they feel like nothing interesting has happened to them yet. Uh, I promise that by 18, something interesting has has happened to you. And another really 
fun prompt is, you know, go home and write a page about anything that you're an expert in. Everybody in this room, you know, 20 or 150 people is an expert in something, whether it's being a barista or making sandwiches. And I love that assignment because it shows them the importance of specificity and and just detail. Because another thing that a lot of young and early writers think is, if I want to appeal to a ton of people, I need to be generic or general or abstract. And what I try to tell them in that class is the more specific you can get, the more likely that I'll understand what it's like being you. If you can describe making that sandwich at Potbelly's every single day, every <laughs> single hour of every single day, I will never have to work at a Potbelly's to understand what it might be like to be a sandwich maker. And that's a real joy. That is a joy of reading so that we can begin to empathize, really. Yeah. I think I think creative writing is all about empathy. No, I agree. I think that that's great. And you're like building like these on the atomic level, like if you can say this about yourself and what you're expert on, transfer that to a character and you have these building Absolutely. blocks that are working you through. Absolutely. I mean, one of the one of the I think most frustrating things about being my friend is if you ever come to me for um if you want me to sympathize with something you're going through that might involve a third person being a jerk to you. I am so bad at just listening to somebody complain about the third person being a jerk. My instinct is always to come up with explanations for why that person has been a jerk. <laughs> and I have people who are very close to me who say, sometimes I just need you to listen and then stop being so empathetic. And I, I, ha I have some family members who will also say, you're so empathetic about that person. Be empathetic about what I'm experiencing. Yeah. <laughs> but but I, as a fiction writer, that's just the first place I go. How can I account for or explain this other person's behavior? That's yeah. especially when it's unkind or ungenerous behavior. I want to believe that something bad has happened to that person today that would make them behave this way. <laughs> yeah, let's give them the context, the context of the doubt. I try, yeah. I try. Some some people make it harder than others, especially that. politicians. <laughs> it's very true. Um, to kind of go back to to your books um, and in your own writing and, and techniques and stuff, um, you've written four novels at this point, and I'm wondering throughout that process if there's a part of the writing, technical, character, whatever you want to do it, that was really challenging for you at first. It's gotten easier or, or you've become more proficient at? Um, oh, can I, can I switch the question around and say what's still hard? Yeah, go for that. Uh, it is still a really getting a project started and, and feeling like I have the right to be working on it uh, and that it's not a waste of my time. That's still just the most soul-crushing portion of any of it, sitting down to the blank page, uh, sitting down to the first five pages. I, I think that one of my weaknesses as an artist is that I'm impatient. Yeah. And so I never feel really good about a project until I have a significant portion of it done and I can see the end. And so often when I'm writing... I don't get to enjoy the process until I'm going back to revise it. I love the revision process. I love getting every single word and every single sentence correct. And I also love, you know, finding those chapters or those paragraphs that I truly don't remember writing. Yeah. Uh, and 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 I read them and I'm like, this is really good. <laughs> I don't <laughs> I don't know how I did it or if I can ever do it again, but I truly admire this. And yeah. and so that that's always 
sort of the 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 rainbow um, at the end of the or the pot at the end of the rainbow. I'm terrible with af- aphorisms. I was really about to say that's the rainbow at the, the end at the end of the pot. <laughs> I found the treasure, and then I looked up and saw that there was a rainbow the whole time. Mm. Uh, I'll, I'm going to end up using that. I'm sure of it. But yeah, just starting a project is still um, soul crushing. And yeah, yeah. What's uh? What are some strategies that you've developed over these these four books to kind of get you to a place where you, even if you don't want to, and you're really pressuring yourself towards it, how do you get yourself to to do the writing and get in that framework? I always try to have my next project underway before promotion yeah. of the newest book uh, begins. So, for instance. I'm working on something now, not actively. You know, I, I, while I'm touring and going around towns, I, I'm reading a ton, and and I and I love touring, particularly for that reason that it's a time to catch up on my reading and yeah. just absorbing life and interacting with people and talking and taking lots of notes. But I always try to have at least a chapter or an idea for the next book, so that when you know, all of this uh, out and about fun stuff dies down and I'm by myself again, which I will be, you know, July 1st, um, I've got something that I can turn to. It's like finishing a marathon. Um, I, I used to run marathons and now I'm just a runner, but I remember finishing my first marathon. I trained for it for six months. I finished it and I'd been using this book called How to Train for and Run Your Best Marathon Ever. Yeah. And so, and it's in it's 13 chapters, but I read the first 12 and I forgot about the 13th chapter, but because the, the 12th chapter is now go run that marathon. And after I ran the marathon, I was walking around my apartment. I was living in Savannah at the time and I would call my mother and say, I'm, I'm depressed. And she'd say, go volunteer. And, you know, I just want to pull my hair out and say, that's fine. I'll go volunteer. I'm still depressed. And, and, but, but like, I would be that blatant about it. I'm depressed. And I'd never felt depression in my life like that. And uh, finally, after about a month or two of really not understanding what my brain was experiencing, I picked up the chapter and chapter 13 is depression. (laughs) (laughs) Because you've just spent six months of your life doing this, preparing for this monumental experience. It happens, you perform the experience, you finish it, and now your body and your brain that has been used to that, that sort of daily struggle, it's gone. The challenge is gone. You you completed it, if yeah. you're lucky. Uh, and, and writing books, frankly, is a lot like that. And, and so what I've tried to do, for me, it is anyway. So what I've tried to do is basically be training for my next marathon by the time I finish you know, the first one. So I'm, I'm working on a book right now and okay. uh, I've, I've got the chapter and, and I can write down little notes as I'm traveling around. And I do that. I write down overheard dialogue that I want to incorporate, ideas that I might have. So I feel like even though I'm not writing right now, I also am not that far from it. It's it's in the back of my mind. Yeah, and that's kind of like a springboard because you've got like the hard part of like starting at this point done and now you take this break yeah. and you're just like compiling and getting ready and rearing to go, right? It, that's right. And and it's a chapter. I've reread the chapter. I've shared it with my agent. Uh, you know, I've shared it with my mother who I'm very close to and who taught me how to write. Uh, and and I feel like I've got, you know, people who who understand what the project is and they're really excited about it. And that's, that's also useful having... 
I'm not in workshops anymore. Now I lead workshops, but having people close to me who are cheerleaders and who know that there's something that I'm working on and they're excited about it, that's so useful. Yeah. You know, it's really it's really great for whatever whatever level writer you are, whether you write just for yourself, but you're not published, whether you don't even care about being published. It's really useful having a community, no matter how small or big it is, who who either is reading or your work or is willing to talk to you about it. Yeah, no, I think that's important. Um, well, interesting. Um, to kind of wrap us up, I'm wondering what you're reading right now. Uh, yeah. And also, if you could tell us a little bit about that that novel, just a very brief summary, if it's not too too precious at this point. So uh, the book that I'm reading right now, and I don't want it to end, it's this good, uh, is Stephen King's The Outsider. I love it. I This is my first full-length Stephen King book that I've ever read. I, I love his book on writing, and I loved his novellas a couple of years ago, but I had never read a novel of his. It's amazing. I don't know why we read anything else. He's just <laughs> a genius. He is all plot and momentum, but he also... He's got this great big heart, and I, I love the way he brings his characters to life, even while he is killing them. Uh, but he's just terrific. So that's what I'm reading right now, and I, I don't want it to end. Um, and then the the book is, I will say this, it is a, it's a first-person narrator. It is a woman who is a teacher. She teaches at um, not a top-tier kind of community college. Um, she has a husband and a daughter and a dog. It's a kind of big city that might be something like Chicago. And she is, uh, she is struggling with an undiagnosed terminal illness and it's a comedy. Okay. Well, that sounds <laughs> That's exciting. All I can say. <laughs> <laughs> and when it's never published, you'll know why. I know exactly, it's, right? <laughs> it's about this woman who's dying, and she's very funny. <laughs> <That's> okay. Just <laughs> send it to the Coen brothers. It'll be fine. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. This was so much fun. That was Hannah Petard, author of Visible Empire. And before that was Rebecca Mackay, author of The Great Believers. And that's our show. You've been listening to The Writer's Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM here in New Orleans. You can catch us every Thursday at 3 p.m. as well as on Sundays at 8.30 a.m. This show will be archived on WRBH's SoundCloud page, which can be found at soundcloud.com slash WRBH Reading Radio, as well as on iTunes and Google Play. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.